Well, good morning. Hey, it's good to see everyone again. Uh, good to be back here. If I am a new face to you, my name is Jared. I uh, interned here about a year ago now, believe it or not. It's been a long time. doesn't seem like it's been that long, uh, but it's been about a year now. And uh, I have since graduated. I'm back in my hometown. I'm doing uh, youth ministry at my home church. So uh, I'm glad to be back. Unfortunately, it's under the circumstances it is. So uh, keep Pastor Brad in your prayers and uh, for a quick recovery. Uh, but it's good to see everyone uh, here this morning. If you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place that he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again. Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On April 10th, 1912, the RMS Titanic set sail from a port in Southampton, England, for New York City. It was at the time the largest ship in the world. It was said to be so indestructible that not even God could sink it. Unfortunately, more than 1,500 people would meet their watery grave five days later in the cold depth two miles below the Atlantic surface. There's a little-known story about the Titanic about a man named John Harper. John Harper was a Scottish pastor who was well-known for his church plants across the country. Two years before, in 1910, he had been a guest speaker at the Moody Church in Chicago, the site of Moody Bible Institute. Shout out to Pastor Nick. So it was that after his wife had passed, John Harper, his sister, and his six-year-old daughter had made it aboard the Titanic, heading back to Moody, that fateful April day. While making sure his daughter and sister made it aboard the life vessels, there was no such space for an adult man such as John, who was left to tread the waters in just a life jacket. Survivors later reported that as the Titanic was sinking, John had admonished people to be prepared to die. Once in the water, John drifted from raft to raft, preaching the gospel to anyone who would listen. One report stated that John had handed his life jacket to someone else, exclaiming, you need this more than I do. He shortly after 
sank in the water and was never seen again. Four years later, a young Scotsman who had survived the wreck arose at a meeting in Canada amongst the other survivors and said, when I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow on a piece of wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I am not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away, but strange to say, brought him back a little later. And he said, are you saved now? No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. He again said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And shortly after he went down and there alone in the night and with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. Every single person in this room this morning has the same decision to make as John Harper. Are you going to be audacious, bold enough for Christ that you will glorify him even in your death? Or are you going to sink under the trials of life and be driven to despair? Throughout the series on the Gospel of John, we are confronted with evidence of who Jesus is and who we are to be because of it. In this two-part series, we will now consider how Jesus is the life and resurrection for those who trust in him. This morning, we will consider how even the final fateful moments and death of Lazarus were used to bring God glory. Is God honored even in the face of struggle, be it the final breaths of John Harper or the sickness of Lazarus? This week, we will examine what it means to walk in a worthy manner of Christ by examining how Jesus and his disciples responded to death and uncertainty. As we consider the life and resurrection of Jesus in our own walk, I want to encourage you to examine yourself this morning as we talk about this, because at the conclusion of the sermon this morning, we'll be going to the Lord's table for the elements of communion. But before we take a look at the text implications for our lives, would you bow your head with me as we ask God for his help in doing so? Dearly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the ability to come into your house, to hear your word, we thank you for sending your son to us, the life and resurrection for us. God, I pray that you would remind us of what the meaning of the season we're in is, which is to know you, to know your son through his life and resurrection, that we may be able to better walk with you, to serve you, and to bring you glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I want to set the scene for you a little bit here. I want to set the scene of what's going on at this point in the story in the Gospel of John. Verses 1 and 2 kind of do that for us. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and worshipped his feet with her hair and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So you might have heard of Lazarus in the story before. If you're a church person, you've probably heard the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But the other two people in the story are people that we see throughout Scripture as well, Mary and Martha. They appear in Luke chapter 10. It's the Mary and Martha who hosted a dinner for Jesus, and one of them was uh, you know, frantically trying to get the preparations around while one of them sat in silence with Jesus. It's the same family here. Uh, the allusion in verse 2 to the Mary who anointed the Lord is one chapter later in John chapter 12. The point being that the, the author, the, the, the apostle in John, wants you to be familiar with this family. They had a certain reputation about them. In fact, Mark chapter 11 tells us that Jesus regularly lodged in the town of Bethany before going to feasts in Jerusalem. The town of Bethany was located really close to Jerusalem, so it was a convenient stop for him. 
So Jesus was probably pretty familiar with this family. This is probably the family that he stayed with when he's going about his ministry in Jerusalem. And so this family had a strong reputation in the early church. They were well known in the early church. You could say that they were a decently happy, well-ordered family before tragedy struck. And maybe you feel that way too. Maybe you feel you have a happy, well-ordered life, a happy, well-ordered family. What are we to do when tragedy strikes? Well, this morning we're going to examine how Jesus and the disciples responded. And the first thing that you're going to see from the text is that we have to glorify God in all that we do. We must glorify God in all that we do. The starting point for responding to tragedy is the decision to glorify God. And namely that we must glorify God by seeking him in our times of need. Verse 3 says, Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Notice what Mary and Martha do as soon as tragedy strikes. They seek Jesus. They seek the Lord. How often I hear it said in the church today, well, I guess there's nothing you can do now but pray. I guess there's just nothing you can do but pray. How often we leave prayer as our last resort. Like, oh, now I have no option. I guess I'm going to have to pray now. But what would it look like if we made prayer, seeking the face of God, the first thing that we do? Jesus was known by Mary and Martha well enough that they could seek him out. They knew where he was, right? He wasn't in Bethany. They sought him out. They knew Jesus well enough to bank on him in their time of need. They desired what was right. Think about John Harper, right? He prepared himself before being in the icy water of the Atlantic. There's an old saying that goes in the Marine Corps. They have a motto which says, you will never rise to the occasion. You will always sink to the level that which you have prepared for. I think that's really true. You will never rise to the occasion when struggles come your way. You will sink to the level that which you have prepared. So how do you seek God in your life? How do you prepare with God in your life? Do you prepare by seeking God in a time of need? Or is he just your last resort? Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. How are you doing with that? Are you diligently seeking God in your daily life? How often I think things would be so different if we would just seek God all throughout our life and not just in our time of need. Lost my microphone here. I'm just going to put it in my pocket. But notice what Mary and Martha do. They don't just seek God when the going gets difficult. They knew God beforehand, but also they seek God not just for themselves, but for their brother. God is glorified when we seek him for others. Maybe they were sitting there and thinking, huh, if our brother dies, think about the estate we could inherit. Think about what he might leave for us. No, they didn't do that. They didn't sit down and calculate what they might gain from someone's loss. They saw Jesus in somebody else's loss. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christ is glorified when we share our burdens with each other, when we seek God for each other. Understand, brothers and sisters in Christ are often made in the sharing of burdens. Pain shared is pain divided. Joy shared is joy multiplied. Do you choose that life for others? Are you the embodiment of the life and resurrection of Christ for others? Do you go to God and intercede for others? James 5.16 says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. 
Think about that. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another. The prayer of a righteous man avails much. Do you choose to seek God first? Is he the one whom you go when the going is difficult? And do you do that for others? Consider that. Secondly, we have to glorify God by recognizing his love for others. We glorify God by seeking him, but out of what heart do we do this? We glorify him in recognizing his love for others. Verse 3, Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, he whom loves you is sick. It doesn't say, he whom we love really dearly is sick. No, it says, he whom you love is sick. Beloved, life has never been about how much we love God. It's about how God has loved us. 1 John 4.19 says, we love him because he first loved us. Mary and Martha had the right perspective about God's love. That's what drove them to seek God in a time of need. Matthew Henry puts it this way, our love for him is hardly worth speaking of, but his love for us can't be spoken about enough. Aren't you glad it was never about how much we loved him? None of us would ever measure up if the starting point of God's work in our lives was how much we loved him. No, we love him because he first loved us. God is glorified when we have the right perspective about his love for us. And he's glorified when we love others because we see God loved them. We glorify God by placing the humanity in other people, recognizing the starting point is God's love, not our own, not he whom loves God, but he whom God loves. Thirdly, we can glorify God even in our sickness and our death. Verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through that. Think about that. What would you do in the last hour of your life if you knew God would be glorified through your death? Would it look like John Harper? Would it look like somebody who's glorifying God? Scripture tells us that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Death is glorifying to the Lord when we do so out of knowing him, trusting him. Even the death of Lazarus was used to glorify God, to bring him his name. God can use anything for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Think about that. When's the last time you've drank a glass of water to the glory of God? When's the last time you've eaten a meal to the glory of God? You can do all things for the glory of God. You can glorify God in the mundane things. You can glorify God in the struggle even in sickness and in death. Colossians 3.23 says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God, even in sickness and in death. Now, I've never done a funeral before. I've only technically been officially in ministry for two, three months now. But one of the things that I'm most terrified of is the thought of doing a funeral for somebody who didn't know the Lord. There's nothing more gut-wrenching than thinking about somebody who didn't glorify God in their life, in their struggle, and in their death. How do you even approach that? But through Jesus, we see here, those whom fervently love the Lord, those whom God loves, glorify him, even in their struggle, even in their death. The afflictions of the saints were designed to bring God glory, 
Throughout the Gospel of John, we have essentially seven major acts of Jesus. And each one sort of elevates the extent to which Jesus reveals himself. Here in John 11, we have kind of the climax of that, where John talks about Jesus' power even over death, the pinnacle of Jesus' act before he was uh, put to death in his ministry. But in his ministry, this is kind of the pinnacle of his display of his glory to the disciples. And so through Jesus' action, do you recognize what are we to do with this guy named Jesus? Is Jesus in control of your life? Do you understand that he's in control even over the struggle and death in your life? So here's a challenge for you. Next time the challenge comes in your life, next time you find yourself in the waters of the Atlantic or with the significant loved one who is sick, never think first about how you might get out of the struggle. Think first about how God may be glorified through it. Have the right perspective, and God will be glorified. But lastly, about glorifying God, understand that we need to, we need to glorify God by loving more deeply. Verse 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. In the New Testament, there's several different words that are used to convey the word love. In English, we don't really have a, a plethora of words. We just use one. But in Greek, there were several different words that meant love. And the choice of the author to use the word agape love for Jesus is very intentional because agape means an unconditional love. It's a love that doesn't look for anything in response. And all throughout the Gospel of John, we're told about Jesus' agape love. Verse 2 says that Jesus loved Lazarus. Verse 5 here says that Jesus loved the family of Lazarus. Verse, chapter 13, verse 1 says that Jesus loves the disciples. Chapter 3, verse 16 says that God so loved the world. We learn a lot about God's unconditional love. But the thing is, we must practice a similar love. 1 John 4, 8 says, He who does not know love does not know God, for God is love. Agape love is not love that seeks for something in return. If you love hoping to be loved back, that's not real love. That's manipulation. True love is one that is unconditional. And it's only out of loving God that we can glorify God through loving others. Vertical before horizontal relationships. So consider that. Consider how you glorify God in your struggle through everything you do and how you love others. But secondly here, as we consider our walk with Christ, understand we must walk in the light of Christ. We have to walk in the light that Christ sheds to us. Firstly here, Jesus walked. Notice Jesus walks at a very patient pace. This, this, when I'm going through my study, this is kind of a, kind of a, a what moment because uh, verse 6 says, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed for two more days in the place that he was. Now think about that. Jesus gets the urgent situation. Hey, he whom you love is sick, so what does he do? He's going to hang out for a couple days, kind of see how that goes. At this point, you're probably wondering, like, what, what is Jesus doing, right? Couldn't he have just healed Lazarus like he did the centurion servant in the Gospel of Mark where he says, hey, he's healed just by me saying the word. Couldn't he have done that for Lazarus? Couldn't he have just healed him from afar? Why does he stop and wait? Why is it that he's so patient with what he's doing? Well, might I suggest that often God moves in life in a way that's patient. God moves in a way that at the time might not make sense, but is used to reveal even more about himself. 
I was thinking about this this past November 15th, where I'm from November 15th is probably the biggest holiday outside of Christmas, which is opening day of uh, deer firearm season. And so everybody in my hometown, I'm telling you, the town is dead. Everybody gets it off work. Uh, the schools are closed. Everybody spends their time in the woods. And so in the woods, I love it. You can, you know, you, you go out there, you bring your Bible, you read your Bible, you get to bring some snacks, some hot chocolate, some coffee. Just spend the day out there. It's, it's honestly a great time. But this, this November 15th, I really took some time to reflect as I spent several hours in my deer blind, not really seeing a whole lot. But when I did see deer, it was really interesting because I would kind of just turn my head and they just showed up out of nowhere. That's kind of how deer work. You just, they show up out of nowhere and you didn't expect it. And I realized that deer don't take the straight path either. So I kind of want to share with you some notes that I wrote down uh, as I was considering uh, being out in God's nature. I wrote this, God reveals himself in paradoxes. I daily pray that God would reveal himself, and one thing that I've learned is he seldom does so through the obvious ways or the grand ways, but through the very subtle, interesting ironies consistent with his character in Scripture. God never takes the easy way to show himself to you. Always the way that in hindsight is better and deeper and richer than meeting us without a cost or a lesson. An experience of God that learns nothing costs nothing and thus is worth nothing. Think about how deer never take an easy path. They always move from one point to another meticulously, never walking in a straight, obvious line. So they can show up in one way that you never expected or saw coming. Animals even are naturally inclined to take a path of hardship through thick branches, through cover and concealment, which in, which in reality offers the best protection written into their very need. Yes, even the order of creation reveals God's subtle roundabout ways of arriving from one point to another in our lives. And I thought about that. I thought about the way God works, the way that he moves so, so meticulously, so patiently, showing up in a way that you never expect. God is often revealed through paradoxes in Scripture, strange roundabout ways that you would never think. The question is, what are we to do with this? What are we to do with a Jesus who waits two days when things get difficult? What are we to do with a Jesus who doesn't answer us in the way that we expect every time right away? Well, might I suggest that it's really the fruit of the Spirit. It's God in your life working in you that allows you to come alongside the pace that Jesus sets for you. Galatians 5, through 24 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Think about that. The fruit of the Spirit is the gentleness, the long-suffering or patience, the self-control to walk at the perfect pace that Jesus has set for your life. Are you doing that? Are you trusting Jesus in your walk? Which brings me to my next point. We must trust Jesus as we walk. Verses 7 and 8. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Then the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews have sought to stone you, and you are going there again? Don't doubt where God is taking you. The disciples had a mistrust that, hey, look, you've been to Judea before. Didn't they try to kill you the last time they were there? And yet, they doubt Jesus can preserve them. Trust Jesus as you walk. When we give up things to God, when we lay it down to him, is when he makes things clear for us. Psalm 18, 2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. 
My God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Is God your rock and fortress to such an extent that you would go anywhere, do anything for him, face any circumstance for him? Where might he be asking you to step out in faith this morning? Where, that, where might that Judea be in your life that you might be doubtful over that God is asking you to step out this morning? We sang about this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel. In Hebrew, the word aman, I was thinking about this as we were singing. I'm like, oh, iman means with, u means us, el is God, with us God, Emmanuel, God with us. Think about it. Jesus walks with us in everything that we do, but more than that, we're given, our, we're given the Holy Spirit, which is God in us. So never doubt where God is taking you. He will never take you anywhere where he's not with you. The question is, what are you walking with? What do you fall back on when the going gets difficult? What is your life raft in the icy waters of the Atlantic? What do you turn to when the going gets difficult? Do you turn to popularity, television? Do you turn to lust? Do you turn to substances? What is it that you turn to? Is Jesus the one you fall back on when the going gets difficult? And thirdly, we must be committed to that walk. As we trust God, we must be committed to it. Jesus' answer to them is this, verse 9 and 10. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. You might be a little confused by this, but what Jesus is saying is essentially this. Hey, I am the light of the world, and he who walks in the light will not stumble. Are there not 12 hours in a day? Meaning Jesus is saying, hey, you have a set time to accomplish your work. Jesus says, hey, I have a set time that the glory of God will be revealed in my ministry. Jesus knew how his ministry was going to shape. So he says, hey, no, we're going to go back to Judea. We're going to accomplish this. We have to be committed with the time that we're given. Is Jesus the light for the 12 hours that you have in this life to walk in? Are you committed to the time that you have? Do you understand the seriousness of walking with God in life when you understand that there are 12 hours in a day? There's only a set time that you have to know Jesus and walk with him in life. I think there's a lie that we tell ourselves when we say, hey, God isn't really that concerned with the fine details of my life. He's not really that concerned about the day-to-day actions that I that I take, the decisions I make. He's just, he's kind of concerned about the grand scheme, but he's not really concerned about the day-to-day things I do. I think that's a lie we tell ourselves. Because the reality is, God has everything to do with the 12 hours of day that we have. God has everything to do with every decision that we make if we would just let him. How we think about God in our lives, in our walk with him, is so important. If you assume that God doesn't really care about this and that, you're going to totally miss the picture. A.W. Tozer says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about your walk with Christ? What comes into your mind when you think about walking with God, who God is to you? Are you committed to your walk? Do you understand the seriousness of the time that we've been given? But thirdly here, as we walk in the light of Christ, we must be willing to let Jesus change our lives We must let Jesus be the one to take the reins in our lives. And you'll see here in the kind of the theme of of John 11 is, is this, that Jesus can awake us from our own spiritual death. 
Verses 11, and 13, 11 through 13. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking a rest and sleep. Are you sleeping through the Christian life? Do you assume that the spiritual death that all inherit is just kind of a sleep? It's not that serious. Notice how the disciples just don't get the gravity of the situation. They kind of assume, oh, you know what, he's, he's, he's not doing well, but he'll be fine. You know, just you know, kind of pat him on the back a couple times. Let him sleep. The reality is we're not just kind of dead apart from Christ. We're totally dead apart from Christ. I've never seen a dead person wake themselves back up, right? It takes an outside person, an outside force to... to move into the life of that person and resuscitate them, to bring them back. God is the one that has to act in our lives to awaken us from our spiritual death. Ezekiel 37, 13, and 14 says, Then you shall know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. When Jesus becomes real, everything in our life changes. Everything in our life is different when God puts his life in us. The reality is the game was rigged before you were even born. Every single person in here was destined to be separate from Christ without God putting his spirit in us. The other night, two nights ago, I, yeah, it was Friday night, I watched the final Pac-12 football game that will ever be played, which to me was kind of sad. The Pac-12 in college football is... I think they're the oldest conference out there outside of the Big Ten. They used to play each other in the Rose Bowl every year. And so it was kind of sad watching this final Pac-12 football game. And it was a good game, and I think Washington won by like three points. But at the end of the game, they're showing the Oregon quarterback, Bo Nix, and they just keep coming back to him. And Bo Nix sat there, played a really good game, and they just kept showing him on camera. He was just sitting in his chair on the bench with his head in his hands, with a towel over his head in defeat. He did everything he could, and yet it still wasn't enough to win the game. He played his job perfectly. He did everything he had to do. Does there come a point in your life where you realize that your hard work isn't enough to win the game? Does, is there a point in your life where you realize, like Bo Nix, you might find yourself with your head in your hands, the towel over your head, and it takes God to awaken you. You can't do it on your own. The disciples say, oh, he'll get well on his own. No, you're not going to get well on your own. It takes God in your life to put life into you. In the very same breath as Jesus talks about the gravity of the situation, notice he says, I go that I may wake him up. Jesus is the one who imparts life and blessing upon us. But secondly, Jesus can change our lives through brokenness. Verses 14 and 15, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. An experience of God that costs nothing does nothing and thus is worth nothing. Jesus essentially says, hey, the cost of this circumstance was so that I may be glorified. I think sometimes we tell ourselves that, hey, we choose Jesus as an alternative to suffering. We choose Jesus so that the problems of life go away. Might I suggest to you that sometimes the only way you find Jesus are through the problems, through the death of Lazarus, through the suffering. Jesus is an alternative to suffering. Jesus you might find through the suffering. Our decision in life isn't Jesus or the chaos of life. It's Jesus and the chaos of life. 
Does Jesus change your life through brokenness? Sometimes the only way you're going to find him is in the icy waters of the Atlantic with the towel over your head in defeat and the death of Lazarus. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Is your heart more broken for God than it was when you started following him? Is your spirit more broken for what God's spirit breaks for than when you started following him? Jesus says, let us go to him. The disciples were men who walked with God. They, they learned to feel like God, to see like God, to yearn like God, to feel what God feels for. Does Jesus change your life through brokenness? Does Jesus change your life by inviting you into brokenness to see as he sees, to feel as he feels? And lastly here, when you think about that, we must follow Jesus no matter the cost. Verse 16 then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his disciples, to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Notice in Scripture, whenever Jesus talks about following him, he always talks about giving up something. He always talks about laying everything down. Matthew 8, 20 says, Then Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Think about following Jesus to such an extent that you have nowhere to lay your head. Jesus might call you to lay things down in life to follow him. I'm not suggesting we should be hermits and not live in homes and, you know, live out in the wilderness like November 15th out in the woods. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we have to just live as hermits. But God will call you to lay things down in life. What might God be calling you to lay down this morning to follow him? Are you willing to lay down anything to follow him? And Thomas recognizes that. Thomas realizes, he says he's called the twin. Apparently, he looked a lot like Jesus, so maybe he was thinking, hey, if I go to Judea, they're going to kill me thinking they're killing Jesus. I don't know. But Thomas apparently looks like Jesus, and he says, hey, let us go that we might die with him. He assumed that by following Jesus, there is a death associated with it. I don't know that Thomas really understand, really understood at this point the the, the fullness of the gospel as Jesus hadn't been crucified yet. But Thomas was on to something right. There is a cost of death when we follow Jesus. Galatians 2.20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By following Jesus, you choose death to yourself. We are crucified along with Christ to our desires, to our passions. Are you willing to lay down everything that gets in the way of following Jesus? Jesus died for our sin. We die to that sin. So I want to ask you this morning, how are you doing with that? Do you choose to glorify God in every circumstance in your life? Even when the drowning happens, even when the loved one dies? Are you willing to follow God to such an extent that he changes your life? Do you walk in the light of Christ? Do you let him walk in the light of Christ? I'd encourage you as we come to communion to reflect on that. I'd encourage you to think about how Jesus is acting in your life in such a way that you are willing to lay everything down for him. It's my hope that this morning you'd reflect on that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for sending your son and making that relationship possible. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to live and to love and to know you.
God, I pray that you would allow us, give us the strength, give us the spirit in our lives that allows us to set anything aside that you would ask of us. And God, I pray if there's somebody here who doesn't know you this morning, that they would be willing to choose that to step out in faith and to come to you admitting and knowing that they are a sinner in need of you, God, that there is a spiritual death apart from you. I pray that you would work in the lives of everyone in here to recommit that to you or to choose that for the first time if they have not already. God, let us walk in a manner worthy of you, that we may believe in you, that we may see your glory and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as we come to communion, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about walking in step with Jesus to glorify him. Are you walking in a worthy manner of Jesus? And here at Oakwood Bible Church, we have an open communion table, which means that for all those who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior are invited to partake in communion. For the children who have not yet made that decision, we would encourage you to let the elements pass until there is a time where they are ready to be willing to accept Jesus so that they may participate in what we're doing. We have two elements here. We have the bread and the cup. And in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle, Peter, or the Apostle Paul tells us this. He issues this admonition admonition to all those who consider and partaking the bread and the cup. Chapter 11, verses 27 through 29. Whoever therefore eats of the bread and drinks of the cup in the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In this warning, there are two potential concerns. The first is partaking in an unworthy manner. Perhaps you have professed Christ as your Savior in the past, but are currently living in outright sinful rebellion against him. If this is the case, I would encourage you to examine your heart before God before partaking in something that you are holding in contempt in your heart right now. If you're not willing to make things right with him in this moment, if you are not willing to repent, then I would encourage you to let the elements pass until such a time as you have made things right with God in your heart. But even better yet would be to get right with God right now, to set your heart on him, to repent and freely join us this morning. The second warning that we're given here by Paul is partaking as an unbeliever. Perhaps you have never been, had the, the opportunity in your life or given your life to Christ. If this is the case, I would also encourage you to let the elements pass as a witness to you. If you haven't given your life to Christ, the elements, therefore, would be something that you are participating in through hypocrisy. But even better, we would ask that you would give your life to Christ this morning. Invite him into your heart. Ask to be on that walk with Jesus, to find him in everything, and then freely join us in communion. As the elements of the bread and cup are passed, please note that both the elements are contained in two cups stacked together. So please make sure that you get both cups and that you hold them together as you are served. We will then thank the Lord for the bread and cup separately. At this time, I'd like to invite the elders to come forward to serve. And as they come and they bring the elements around, I would uh, please ask that you take this time to be in prayer, examining your own heart before God, seeking his forgiveness and deliverance, renewing your commitment to him, and remembering with thanksgiving his sacrifice on the cross as he paid the penalty for our sins once and for all. Would you please pray aloud with me? Matthew 6, 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As Paul has written to the church at Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I've asked Elder Tim Peterson to pray for the bread which was broken for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, once again, uh, you invite us into this level of intimacy and relationship with you as we pause to remember the sacrifice that your son has made uh, through your provision and your plan for us uh, to know you, the creator of the universe, wanting an intimate relationship with us. It's uh, an amazing thing, Lord. But we pause for a moment to remember Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and his body broken for us, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Please take and eat. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. I've asked Elder John to pray for the cup which was poured out for us. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for sending Jesus down to this earth to ultimately die for our sins. The shedding of blood was a requirement, but it was done this time once for all for the sins of all mankind. So this juice represents the blood of Jesus, and we are thankful for that. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you. I'll, I'll drink For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Would you please stand with me as we close our service in prayer this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for sending your Son, which we took of the elements in remembrance of this morning. God, thank you for making a relationship with God possible with yourself possible. I pray that you would work that word into our hearts. Let us live for you, God. Let us glorify you in everything that we do. Let us do all that in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.